So as we pray, let me read these words from Psalm 143, verses 5 and 6. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy doings. I muse on the work of thy hands. I stretch out my hands to thee. My soul longs for thee as in a parched land. Father, it is before you that we bow this morning, knowing that it is from you alone that we derive our strength. It is you who is the healer of our souls and of our spirits. And Lord, this is a a difficult day for many, and we just want to uphold our dear friends, for Vince and the family, and for Bobby. And Lord, just pray that you will be their strength, their help. You will be, as you have promised in your word, a very present help in time of need. And Lord, I pray that we as brothers and sisters in Christ will not only pray for our friends, but be there for them. Listen to their words and share our friendship. We thank you, Lord, that when one goes on to be with you, we know that they're immediately in the presence of God to enjoy your presence forevermore. But for those left behind, the battle still goes on. And even as we study from this passage of Scripture this morning, which deals with battle, and even though in many ways, of course, this was a physical battle, but we know that behind it was a great spiritual battle, And we too are locked in a spiritual battle, a warfare that seems to be intensifying as we approach the end of this millennium. I pray, Father, that you will be our strength, that we will realize that we we cannot fight it alone, and that we need each other, and we need to be encouraging to each other. Father, I pray for your presence here this morning, that you will bless us, that you will open our minds and hearts to hear what you have to say today. And I ask that you will glorify yourself in our midst this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll turn to the 11th chapter of Joshua, I'd like to read, to begin with, the first five verses from Joshua 11. Then it came about, when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of it, that he sent to Jobab, king of Madan, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were in the north, in the hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Kinneroth, and in the lowland, and on the heights of Dor on the west, to the Canaanite on the east, and on the west, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Jebusite, and the hill country, and the Hivite at the foot of Mount Hermon, in the land of Mizpeth. And they came out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. So all of these kings, having agreed to meet, came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. One of the things that we discover, I think, very quickly in life as Christians is that Satan does not give up easily. Uh, He is not easily discouraged. And, of course, he is not easily defeated. No city up to this time had been able to resist Israel's attack. And, of course, the great southern confederacy, as we studied about it in the previous chapters here, had been destroyed by obviously supernatural power. And yet, a northern confederacy is hastily put together. For what reason? To defend against Israel. You know, you would, you would think that would get through that there's no hope here. 
You're just not going to make it, folks. But Satan is constantly at work. He may go away for the moment, but he'll be back. The largest and most powerful city in Canaan at, at the time of the conquest was the city of Hazor. We have copies of the map. If any of you doesn't have a copy of the map, uh, Norma has a few more copies back there. It's, a, it's kind of a primitive map, but at least it gives you the idea. If anybody wants one, just raise your hand and Norma can get you a copy. So that you can see where these cities are located that I'll be referring to this morning. Hazor was located about 10 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And what was important about it was that it controlled some major trade routes of that particular time. As I mentioned to you before, the, the primary trade route of the whole region, which came down through Damascus and passed along the sea and all the way down into Egypt, was called the Via Maris, or the Way of the Sea. And Hatzor sat right on that trade route. And in addition to that, there was a trunk route that went from Hatzor connecting across to the King's Highway, which went down the uh, ridge of the um, Transjordan area. So it was right at a, at a crucial crossroads of uh, transit of that particular time. On the top of the tell at Hatzor is an area of about 25 acres. And, and you can visit the site and, and you can see the remnants. Much of what you'll see today, if you go there, the abundance of what you'll see to there, there today is, is Solomon's constructions, which were, uh, of course, in the 10th century B.C., and his construction there is very similar to Megiddo. If you ever get a chance to see Megiddo, the constructions are very similar. But, but in the archaeological digs that have gone on there, they have dug down through the many layers that preceded Solomon's period of time. And um, the, the top of the tell, most of the cities, or I should say many of the cities of Israel, were built on mounds. And as the cities rose and fell over the centuries, the mounds got higher and are, are known by the Arabic word tell, which simply means mound. In Joshua's day, the top of its glory. And of course, if you, if you visit modern Jerusalem, you're, you're, everything's thrown askew by the fact that modern Jerusalem, of course, is spilled all over the hillsides. I mean, a third of a million people live in modern Jerusalem. And even the old city, the old city, which you see today, is the city that the walls of which are largely of Turkey's construction. Now, the lower portions, of course, date all the way back to Herodian times. But there, you've got about a square mile now. That's a lot larger than the city was in the days of David and of Solomon. Within these walls, the lower walls that surrounded the lower city, was a population of about 40,000 people. Now, let's think about that this morning. 40,000 people. That's about half the population of Reading. And Reading is 60 square miles. And so you've got half the population of Reading squished into a third of a square mile. You, you get a feeling that uh, these ancient cities, the population was fairly dense. And of course, they did go up more than one floor, but again, they didn't have big old high rises. So they didn't live like we do. You know, we go out and we want to buy a home, three bedrooms, two bathrooms, you know, 1,800 square feet. <laughs> I mean, they, I don't know how many families they'd put in a place that size. Actually, this still happens even in, in modern cultures. I was reading an article several years ago about how uh, in a nine-room apartment in Moscow, there were 50 people living. Not a lot of privacy. Uh, people's view of privacy, of course, is different from what ours is today when you live in that type of a situation. The significance of Hatsor was its strategic location. And this was emphasized by the fact that you know, I mentioned to you that Lach, uh, Lachish or Lachish 
was mentioned in uh, the Tel Amarna, Amarna scrolls, but Hatzor is not only mentioned in Egyptian writings, it's also mentioned in Mesopotamian writings. It's, it's mentioned even in the writings of Mari, the civilization that existed over in northern Mesopotamia. And so this, this was a very, very uh, important city, probably the key city in all of Canaan as far as the situation existed at the time of, uh, of Joshua. Well, if you can kind of picture the city, it, it's on the edge of the um, valley north of the Sea of Galilee. There was a double wall around the city. And then, of course, the, uh, there was a steep glossus up to the Acropolis on the top. And for all practical purposes, the city was impregnable. For that day, it would have been very difficult for a standard army to capture the city of Hatsor. It would have taken a siege, probably of multiple years, and a large army to successfully capture the city of Hatsor. In spite of its great strength, however, Jabin, now the term Jabin probably is not a name. It's probably a title because later on in the days of the judges, you'll discover the city has again fallen back into the hands of the Canaanites and there is another Jabin. Now it's possible uh, for it to be a name because as you know, England had eight, eight Henrys and you know France had 18 Louis and all the rest of this, but it's probably, uh, probably was a title, Jabin. Uh, of the ruler. Uh, this man did not want to face Israel alone, even with all the, the strong defenses that he had for his city. So he called together the kings of other Canaanite cities in the nearby region and wanted to form a northern confederacy. And we discover here that specifically mentioned are three cities, Madan, Shimron, and Akshaf. These were cities that were located uh, between the Sea of Galilee and Mount Carmel, so south of Hatzor, uh, across in that strip of land, at least the believed location. A lot of these Israelite or ancient Canaanite cities can only be, um, their locations can only be ascertained through similarities of names that the Arabs have attached to villages nearby or various other methods have been used to try to locate these cities. Some are positively located and others are not. Hatzor is very positively located because it's never... Uh, been lost, but other cities have been. These cities were called to join together in this great confederation. Now, although the Hittites and the Amorites and the Jebusites and the Hivites and all these other ites that lived in the land were not particularly friendly to each other. It's a, no wonder, it's a wonder somebody hasn't put in here in the stalactites and the stalactites <laughs> and all the others, you know. You could probably put that in there and some people wouldn't even, wouldn't even slow them down. These were not particularly friendly to each other as, as nations. But, you know, when you're facing mutual annihilation, suddenly you can put aside some of these, uh, these things that you've disagreed with over the past and, and join forces and forget your difference. Now, not always, not always. When Philip II of Macedon conquered the Greeks, it was largely because the Greeks refused to settle their differences, to join forces to defend against this attacking enemy. And so they got picked off one at a time. That sometimes happens. But, you know, in the case of Philip of Macedon, the Greeks, you know, Satan was on both sides. Um, now, in this case, <laughs> Satan's on one side and God's on the other. So Satan is doing his dead-level best to organize his uh, forces here against Israel. And so this is a desperate attempt by the Canaanites to ward off what they saw as a scourge from the wilderness, these, these Israelites 
who are coming in like a plague of grasshoppers and destroying everything in, in, in front of them. Now, the cities of this confederation, the four that are named plus, plus others, these cities altogether covered an area of about 1,500 square miles. And it's important to note because um, in this passage we read about Kinneroth or Kinnereth. Uh, that is the Old Testament name for the Sea of Galilee. Uh, the word means harp, you know, like harp, 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 and probably refers to the shape of the lake. It has sort of a harp shape to it as you view it from above. And, and of course, nobody had a satellite view of, uh, of Sea of Galilee in those days. But, it, but if you get up on the heights, uh, both to the east and to the west of the, uh, of the lake, you get a pretty good view of the shape of the lake uh, from up there. In New Testament times, the lake had several names that are mentioned in the scriptures. Sea of Galilee, of course, is the name that most of us are familiar with. But it's also known as the Sea of Tiberias. Because in the days of the New Testament, as is true today, the largest city on the Sea of Galilee was the city of Tiberias, which, of course, is named for the emperor of Rome at the time of the crucifixion of Christ. And also it's referred to in, in the New Testament as the Sea of Gennesaret, which is largely just simply the Greek version of Kinnereth. So whenever you see those names, it's all the same place. These are not different lakes. They're all the same lake. Uh, there in northern Canaan. We can believe that these Canaanite peoples invoked their many gods. Archaeologists have uncovered a temple which existed at this time on the site of Hazor. And uh, this temple had some structures somewhat similar to the later Israelite temple. Uh, it wasn't a very large temple, and a small shrine has been discovered also. So you can believe that these Canaanites did everything to plead with their gods to give them help against these attacking Israelites. And then they gathered their vast army at a place the scripture refers to as the waters of Merom. Now, I think we're talking about tens of thousands of soldiers here. It doesn't give us a specific number just says that they're as the sands of the sea, which of course is metaphorical, but you get the feeling that there's a lot of them. Um, you know, it's not like 10 guys or 100 guys here. We're talking about probably tens of thousands of infantry, cavalry, and charioteers are gathering together there at this waters of Merom. And personally, I see this as Satan marshalling all the forces of hell to stop God's plan. Satan does not, I don't believe at this time, really understand God's plan, but he knows God is doing something which is for the good of the human race, and Satan is opposed to that, and so he's doing whatever he can to stop the work of the Lord here and to prevent Israel from conquering the land. But you know, um, that was a forlorn hope. We know that, of course, from our study of the Old Testament, and, and Jesus himself, of course, speaking of the church, but I think it applies to I mean, what is the church? The church is all of God's obedient people, Old or New Testament, I think. And, and so Jesus said in Matthew 16, the gates of hell shall not prevail. Gates of hell shall not prevail. Sometimes it sure seems like they are, doesn't it? But Satan will not prevail. Israel had crushed a mighty southern confederacy. But this northern confederation said, but we're different because we've got chariots. And we've got horses. 
and, and, and we are more powerful even than the Southern Confederacy, and therefore we will defeat Israel because Israel only has infantry. Now, you study through the history of ancient warfare, you're going to discover that an army which is only infantry facing an army that has infantry and cavalry or infantry and chariots, they, the one without the chariots and cavalry is at a distinct disadvantage. You have to have a very, very brilliant commander like Alexander the Great in order to fight an army that has those kinds of weapons. The, the chariot was the tank of that day. Now, it's not exactly like a tank, of course, but the weapons against it weren't exactly like modern weapons either. So uh, the chariot was a very dangerous weapon when wielded well, and of course the Canaanites were very proficient at it at the use of the chariot. And so, if anybody were looking at this situation from the outside and knew nothing of God, and the God factor was not involved here, looking at this, they would, they would if they were betting people, they would have bet on the Canaanites at, in a heartbeat. Because it didn't matter how many infantry Israel was marshalling, if you've got all these horses and all these chariots, all this cavalry associated with infantry, you're a distinct disadvantage. And if you have the cavalry, you're at an advantage, and those without them are at a distinct disadvantage. Now, the exact location of the waters of Merom is not known, somewhat in doubt. But most scholars feel that it must be that they gathered at one of the major springs, which is located at the base of the mountain called Mount Merom. Now, Mount Merom is the highest mountain in all of Canaan. It's just under 4,000 feet tall. It's higher than anything else from Mount Hermon, which is higher, of course, up south, all the way down into the deserts to the south. Nothing is higher than Mount Merom west of the Jordan River. And so they gathered there at the base of this peak, which you'll, you'll notice is west of Hatzor. And there this, this um, multinational force, I guess you could say, of Canaanites gathered together to make their plan. Why they picked this site, we, we do not know possibly because it's more or less central to all the cities that are gathering together here, from Dor over in the coast to, to Hatzor and to the other cities that are around over at the base of Mount Hermon. They're all gathering sort of centrally here at Mount uh, Merom. And of course, you couldn't miss the mountain, tallest mountain, so, you know, gather there. Everybody would know <laughs> where to gather. If I had been Jabin or any of the other kings of that time, I would have thought, you know, maybe I have some physical advantages here. I have military veterans in my army, and I have horses and chariots, and I have, you know, this, this very large army. But, you know, looming over this whole thing would be the Yahweh factor. Because the Canaanites could not point to a single day when their gods parted the Red Sea or stopped the Jordan River or knocked the walls of a city down or rained hail the size of bowling balls down to wipe out it or stopped the sun in the sky for a day. I mean, I think after a while they'd begin to really get the point that their gods are nothing compared to Yahweh. Maybe they just wanted to see what Yahweh would do. <laughs> Well, what great thing is he going to do to kill us? You know, I don't know. That doesn't sound like, a, sound like a good plan. I mean, these were stunning miracles. And, and we already read clear back when we dealt with Jericho that uh, Rahab said, testified to the fact that the miracles were known beginning with the Red Sea crossing 40 years before. The Canaanites still knew that story. I mean, this is a different generation of people. They still knew that story. And they were afraid, afraid. It says their hearts melted within them. 
What we discover, of course, from Scripture, beginning with Genesis and reading all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation, is that God delights in delivering his people in spite of the seemingly insurmountable odds against them. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen without loss. All you have to do is read the 11th chapter of Hebrews. All you have to do is read Fox's Book of Martyrs <laughs> or the more modern book, By Their Blood, 20th century Christian martyrs, to see that the victory that God wins is a victory that seemingly from the human perspective is at great cost. But of course, none of that cost exceeds what Jesus did on Calvary. Well, let's, let's look, uh, read on here in the 11th chapter, beginning at verse 6. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow at this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel, and you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came upon them suddenly by the waters of Merom and attacked them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel so that they had defeated them, so that they defeated them, and pursued them as far as the great Sidon and Mizraphoth Maim and the valley of Mizpah to the east. And they struck them until no survivor was left to them. And Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Now, how did Joshua know they were gathered at the waters of Merom? Well, I think Joshua had his spies out. You know, one, one of the things we sometimes, it, it, just a perfunctory reading over Joshua, we almost get the feeling like Joshua was just a knee-jerk reaction to everything here and went out and did this thing. No, I, I don't think it was like that. I think Joshua had feelers out all the time. Joshua had spies out across the land. And, and Joshua was, was a man who was sensing what was going on here. Joshua, however, was never a man to hem and haw about what to do, uh, waiting for that elusive opportune moment to strike. Remember what happened when, it, when the news came that the enemy had surrounded Gibeon. It's just like, he says, calls all the troops and marches. No, no big council, what to do. He just marches. And so Joshua gathers his forces. We, we don't know how large the forces were, tens of thousands undoubtedly. And, and he marched his forces against the Canaanites. And as God always does, and as he had done to Joshua before, as we read in the sixth verse, the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid because of them. For tomorrow at this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. Just in case, you know, he was worried that maybe this wasn't the right thing. He was being too rash. God came and said, this is what I want you to do. Now, he was already on the march. He didn't wait for the Lord's Th this assurance to come while he was still back at Gilgal. He had committed himself to do what he felt God was leading him to do, and then God came to him and confirmed what he was doing. Now, we don't know what the Canaanite plans were. Were the Canaanites planning to fight Israel at the waters of Merom? Possibly. They ended up doing that whether they wanted to or not. I, I would think that since they had cavalry, and uh, they had chariots, that their desire would be to fight on relatively flat ground. And there's nothing flatter than the region Gilgal was located in. Uh, so it's very possible that they were just simply uh, mustering their forces there at the waters of Merom, and that they intended to march and, and to attack Joshua over there at Gilgal. That would have made a lot more sense. 
uh, given the kinds of uh, equipment that the Canaanites had. But whatever was the case, Joshua wasn't going to wait for them at Gilgal. So Joshua marched against the Canaanites at Merom. It's probable in his mind that he thought infantry will have a better advantage in, in a little bit more hilly country. Well, you know, to march from Gilgal to the base of Mount Merom is no easy task. Again, of course, they had to climb up the escarpment. Remember, that's a half a mile vertical climb out of the uh, Jordan Valley there to get up on top of the ridge and then march north and all the way up into Galilee. Um, it probably took him close to five days to march his army from Gilgal up there to be in position to strike the Canaanites at Merom. Now, the passage of Scripture, I think, makes it fairly clear in verse 7 where it says, So Joshua and all the people war with him came upon them suddenly. I think that tells us that Joshua launched a surprise attack. Just as he did at Gibeon, he came upon the enemy and they were not aware of his presence. At least they weren't aware that he was prepared to attack at that hour. And so the element of surprise seems to play a major role in this. Joshua is a bold but not reckless commander. And he knew, of course, because we read the passage there, that God had promised to give him the victory and to deliver the enemy army slain. That doesn't mean that God was going to kill all the enemy soldiers, but that they would end up dead. And, of course, in this case, Israel would be the agent of their slaughter. I believe that we can interpret from these scriptures here that Joshua carefully planned and covered everything with prayer. I believe he was a man of prayer ever since he learned how to pray on Mount Sinai while Moses was in the cloud and he was halfway down the mountain. I think he became a real man of prayer at that hour. Forty days is a long time to be inside of a mountain waiting for somebody to come down and I think you're praying a lot. And I, I think he was... You know, you, you can pray without actually getting down on your knees and having your special prayer time. I mean, while you're marching, you can pray. And, and so he was. God had prepared Joshua to be the man of the hour. God had given him certain skills and experience now for the moment, but God had given him a spirit. God had given him a spirit that was open to the spirit of God. And he listened to God's voice. And he moved ahead knowing God was, was guiding and God was going before. And I think in this, Joshua is a wonderful illustration to us of how God carries out his plan. God carries out his plan through you and through me by his careful pre preparation of us for the task that is coming. Sometimes we may seem, it may seem to us that, that, that we face a crisis that we weren't prepared for. But, you know, in reality, God has been working to prepare us for that crisis, that situation, all through the years ahead. God prepares us through the Word, through our study, through, through listening to the Word of God. He prepares us, prepares our minds, prepares our heart. He, he prepares us through prayer. Prayer is one of the most important elements in preparing us for whatever is coming up, whatever we need to face. The prayerless person is, is a person who faces crisis without the armor of God. And then, of course, through experience, good soldiers in God's kingdom listen to his word. They're people of prayer, and they're people who take each experience as something God has given 
to enable them to serve him better. And so I think we have to view the trials of life, the tribulations of life, and even the blessings of life as, as part of God's preparation. None of it's an accident. None of it is just, oh, well, you know, it just so happened to be that it happened that day and it's no big deal. No, it's all part of God's plan. I don't think anything happens to us that God has not ordained for our good in some way. And that good is to be used in reaching out and ministering to others as part of his kingdom. We are soldiers in his kingdom. And, and our weapons, of course, are, are not steel and, and uh, wood. Our weapons are the word of God and prayer and, and the gifts that God has, has given to the church. But all of this is part of God's training program. And, and as I thought about that, uh, came to my mind, as it may have to yours, to read Paul's words to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy. Paul, of course, talks a lot about warfare and being a good soldier and so forth. Not that Paul was ever a military man, but he certainly knew about spiritual warfare. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, we read these familiar words. You, therefore, my son, my daughter, He's speaking specifically to Timothy, of course, so he calls him my son, but on our application, we have to broaden it. Be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Be strong in what? The grace, the unmerited favor that is ours through Christ. And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men and women who will be able to teach others also. It's an ongoing thing. We teach others who teach others who teach others down through the centuries. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. This, this doesn't mean, of course, that we aren't involved in the affairs of everyday life. We can't avoid it but we don't let them trip us up. We, we see the affairs of everyday life as preparing us for the great spiritual warfare that we are in. And so I think the words that Paul spoke to Timothy are words that apply to all of us. And, and Joshua's a good example of a good soldier who's been prepared, not without mistakes because we all make them, but a good soldier that is listening to God and God is using him to deliver his people as I mentioned to you before, verse 7 seems to indicate that the attack was a surprise and that the Canaanites were not ready. I, you know, I, it would have been wonderful to have had a video camera down the Canaanite camp doing your thing while, while Israel's attacking. I, you know, I think the Canaanites were running pell-mell. I, I, I don't know if you know the story of the uh, Battle of San Jacinto, which occurred not too long after the Battle of the Alamo in uh, Texas. But um, Texans were pretty ticked off by the Alamo. And when they encountered um, Santa Ana's army, the president of Mexico had invaded uh, Texas. Texas had, was a Mexican province. That's why, of course, he was there. But uh, when they encountered him, they didn't just say, oh, there he is, let's attack. They waited until the Mexican army took siesta. But they were into siestas, you know. And so the Mexican army took a siesta. And then the Texans attacked. And, and, and they caught most of the... Um, Mexican army, slightly unprepared, you know, running around in their underwear trying to get their guns and get together as the Texans were attacking. I mean, it was a, it was a total disaster where a small army overwhelmed the large army 
because they were not prepared. And, and this is true here. And part of their unpreparedness is God's, well, not part of, it's all God's doing. I think God facilitated their unreadiness. If you know English history, there was uh, an English king who was known as Ethelred the Unready. <laughs> How'd you like to go down in history as so-and-so the unready? <laughs> well, this was Jabin the unready. And, you know, I think the problem was not just that they were caught by surprise that day. I don't think they had yet worked out the whole chain of command thing. This is a coalition army. Okay? It's made of an army from here, an army from there, an army from somewhere else. And every army came in with its commander, and its commander thought, well, I should probably command this whole operation, you know. You can imagine, if you've ever looked at the lives of some of the great generals of history, most of them have egos so big you can't even believe it. Maybe that's what it takes to be a good general, but they sure don't fit well with other commanders often. And, of course, you, you, know, you read about Rommel, and, and you read about Montgomery, and, and uh, Patton, and some of these guys, you know. Uh, and I, I think that was true here. I think their chain of command, their battle plan hadn't even been worked out yet, that they were uh, jealous of each other, and uh, they were totally unready. And their advantages, which were in chariots and in horses, were totally lost. Their advantages were lost because they were caught unaware, and Israel swept down into their camp and routed them. And they fled pell-mell in every direction, mostly to the north, the scripture indicates. You know, no matter what is the human factor here, God delivered the Canaanites to Israel. Whatever was the human factor, God delivered the Canaanites to Israel. They were totally routed. I, you know, I think they felt pretty foolish, running like crazy. And as I mentioned to you last time, and is true throughout history of warfare, even to this very day, a fleeing army is an easy-to-kill army. And that's why I think they were slain in, with such a great slaughter. Thousands, tens of thousands slain that day as they, as they fled from Israel. Certainly some got away, but they fled clear off into Lebanon, way to the north, to, to escape Israel that particular day. Well, I, I, I wanted to make some significant points here about... Um, God's sovereignty in all of this, and also to, to explain a little bit why it was that God had ordered Israel to do something that seems for, to, to us from our perspective is a little uh, strange. You know, if, if we captured an enemy army's equipment, shouldn't we use the enemy's equipment? Why should we hamstring the horses and burn all the chariots? Well, this is not a, a purposeless thing. God orders this for some very specific reasons, and I don't have time to develop them today, so I think what I'll do is we'll pick up this passage next time. Just remember the Canaanites are running like crazy, <laughs> and next week we'll pick up with how God converts all of that into the great disaster of the waters of Merom.